On today's Priority Queue, we explore DMEVPN. Did you catch that? That's not Cisco's DMVPN, which we have talked about multiple times on this show, but DMEVPN, which is at this point an open source proof of concept technology using a DMVPN-like construct for multi-point EVPN tunnels. Joining us today is Sarab Mohan, a software engineer who's been building software products for the networking space for over 15 years now. Saab wrote up a detailed post on the DM EVPN code that he's created that actually works and is available on GitHub. Saab, welcome to the Priority Queue. Hey, Ethan. Thanks for having me over. Um, I have been a long-time listener and I've always appreciated the quality of your content. It's not infrequent that I listen to the same podcast multiple times just to make sure I got details. Uh, yeah. So thank you for having me over here. Well, thanks for coming on board. And uh, we had trouble with Skype. So we switched over to GoToMeeting and phone and just trying to make the most of this. So, so dear listener, this has been <laughs> what you don't hear sometimes in the show was 15 minutes of Sarab and I trying to get this call together and just to make something work. Uh, and of course I'm recording this during a big Northeast blizzard where I've been having power blips. So if we actually get this thing recorded, it's going to be, it's going to be a good day. And, uh, sorry, like you, you mentioned, um, you know, not infrequently, they have to listen to a podcast multiple times to get all the details. This, uh, listener is going to be one of those. Um, there's a lot of details in here as, uh, as Sarab and I worked on this, mostly Sarab doing all the heavy lifting for the details that we're going to be discussing today about DME VPN. So Sarab, let's, um, let's level set for everybody. If, if we assume that everyone listening understands the basics of DMVPN, what then is DMEVPN? If uh, let's assume that everybody is uh, somewhat comfortable with the concepts around DMVPN. So DMVPN essentially is a way to extend layer three networks across an external network. Typically that external network ends up being an internet. And DM EVPN is very similarly a way to extend layer two tunnels across an external IP network. It fundamentally uses the same underlying technologies that are used to build a DMVPN solution. For example, multi-point tunneling, next top resolution protocol, NHRP, and potentially IPsec tunneling on top of it to add security. So in some way, it's very similar to the concepts that are used to build a DMVPN uh, type solution. Right. And the, the biggest difference being, whereas with DMVPN, we're typically in a layer three world, um, in DMEVPN, we're using this, this idea for extending layer two uh, tunnels. So we can actually extend the same broadcast domain, if you will, uh, across this layer three infrastructure. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So um, you got it perfectly right there. So the the way some of the work that has gone on in the industry to encapsulate layer two traffic in a IP tunnel, that enables us to kind of use protocols that were used by DMVPN to apply and apply them again to the to uh, to layer two to extend layer two broadcast domains across an IP network. So that's the that's the fundamentally the new piece that the that DME uh, VPN adds to the mix. All right. Now, d just to go back to DMVPN for a minute, um, since a lot of the technology that you're using with DME VPN is is common with DMVPN. Now, DMVPN, a lot of people think of it as like a Cisco-specific technology, but but is it actually Cisco-specific? Yeah, so you're right that 
the way the technology was has been the predominant uh, the uh, let me repeat that uh, uh, I'll start from over the genesis of DMVPN was with Cisco and primarily its biggest biggest advocate has been Cisco also but the underlying technologies that make up DMVPN have been our IETF standards and there are all of those underlying uh, uh, protocols and RFPs are available as open source implementation. So we can in, uh, we can reuse some all of the pieces that are composed of in DMVPN to build uh, open source implementation of uh, equivalent implementation to DMVPN. In fact, when I was at Viata, which is now VRouter at Brocade, we added support for DMVPN, which was compatible with Cisco implementation. So again, just to reiterate, um, the underlying protocols are all uh, RFCs, and there are all of them have open source implementations out there. So you can potentially pick all the pieces and build in a compatible solution to DMVPN. Got it. And 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 right that uh, you reminded me that uh, Viata has a DMVPN. Uh, right now, vRouter Brocade, as you said, uh, has has a DMVPN implementation that they released. It goes back a few years now, but uh, but I do remember that uh, now that you bring that up. So so right, this is all standards based technology protocols with open source implementations that you've pulled together here. Um, so let's talk about architecture for a second, because I mean, some people would argue that stretching layer two all over the place, which is the the core of what you can do with DMEVPN. Somebody would might argue that stretching layer two all over the place is kind of a bad thing. So, I mean, in your mind, what's the scope for a DM EVPN deployment? I mean, is it just like within a data center or is there a wide area play here? How do you see it being implemented? Yeah, so that's a really great question. Actually, the way, if, if I think of two large buckets of customers, first one would be, I would say, is network service providers. And if you are a network service provider offering something like a Metro Ethernet or a maybe a Ethernet type service across uh, or a carrier Ethernet type of service, then I can see for them there is a use case for stretching layer two networks across the WAN. But I would also extend that statement by saying that they also typically end up owning the core of the van over which they are running such services. So they are not trying to build these uh, layer two extensions uh, across a internet type van environment. They typically have a fairly uh, large scope of uh, domain control over which they are trying to build this uh, stretched ethernet services. The second set of customers, I would say, are enterprises. And to be very honest with you, I still don't know of a good use case where they want to stretch layer two across data centers. So from that perspective, I think the rather more interesting use case for stretch layer two may be within the scope of a single physical data center, but maybe around where you, uh, the enterprise customer is trying to mesh together physical and virtual networks together. So that may be one use case, which would be very interesting. And maybe they have multiple virtual environments, or if you want to think, call them cloud pods, that they want to interface with each other. 
So I think those are two interesting use cases for stretched layer two. But again, both of them, I would say, would be very much within the scope of a single physical data center infrastructure. And uh, so that, I think that's a particular, that's a, I, I can see that as a use case for enterprise customers. And in that case, so for example, if we take the use case of uh, cust- uh, enterprise customer who have, which has a virtual environment, maybe an open stack or a VMware type uh, environment where they're building virtual layer two networks, but they also have a physical infrastructure and they want to uh, mesh these two networks together, then it's potentially you put both these infrastructures behind DM, EVP, and spokes, and that way you have a layer two gateway to interconnect these two, um, two uh, layer two uh, networks together. Uh, so in my opinion, unless it's absolutely needed, please don't try to stretch layer two networks across the van. <laughs> and, uh, but I would definitely, uh, if there is a use case that anybody knows about, which is genuinely they want to stretch layer two across vans for the enterprises, it would be very interesting to hear that use case. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the one I always hear is the, uh, it was the vMotion. They want to take a virtual machine in one data center and in the same layer two domain, move it across uh, to a different data center, which is usually an application design challenge. And then there's, I mean, there's protocols out there that support that sort of thing, you know, like Cisco OTV, um, for example, and so on. It's hard to imagine. I, I think a lot of folks are second guessing that design because it, it introduces complexity and some challenges um, that are painful just for the just for the ability to have that IP and keep it um, no matter where it goes, um, whichever data center it goes into. But that introduces so many other design compromises in the infrastructure. It's, it's a hard thing to support. So uh, I know a lot of folks are saying, well, how can we make the application so that it's not IP dependent and uh, work on an application level architecture that way? Um, other than that, I'm not sure, you know, what stories you'd hear where stretch layer two across the WAN between data centers is a big, is a big deal. Nothing else is popping into my head. So that's a great point there, Ethan. Actually, there are a couple of points there. So definitely, I do see some conversations in the industry around bring your own IP kind of a, where you are trying to migrate uh, things from your private networks into uh, maybe public clouds, and there's some sort of use cases there. I can see that as a use case, and that might, that might be an interesting use case. And But I also completely hear your point where the newer type of application infrastructures uh, are trying to move away from building services which are strongly coupled with IP addressing. Hmm. So and, and I'm thinking Dockers, right, where you're trying to totally... Oh. Yeah, very much. Application services just come up and then you just dig a formal in nature. Yeah, very much. So, okay. So so just to encapsulate that, we're talking about two uh, major use cases that you're seeing. Um, Some, uh, there would be Metro Ethernet network service providers offering a Metro Ethernet service may have a good uh, use case for that. Uh, And then a, a mixed data center environment, some physical, some virtual and need a common infrastructure that they can fall behind and and be connected to one another. It gives them a you know, a way to do that without having to layer on some other kind of software um, onto the host because the spokes and you know, or the the routers, if you will, that are or the devices acting as routers that are doing DMVPN take care of all of that 
you know, for you and you don't have a you know, integration with a soft switch that's required necessarily or having to have a, uh, a switch that's, uh, you know, a VTEP tightly coupled to a controller uh, necessarily. You've got, um, you've got a different design option here. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Okay, so uh, VXLAN, that is an encapsulation technology we've been talking about on this show for years. Uh, it encapsulates an entire Ethernet frame inside of a uh, VXLAN IP uh, over UDP packet. Um, but now we're adding IPsec to the mix within DME VPN, which gives us uh, encryption. And that's a good thing. But then now we've got this even bigger packet. We've got an Ethernet frame inside of VXLAN uh, encrypted with IPsec. So, so are there issues with uh, MTU and fragmentation that we need to be aware of as that packet gets bigger and bigger with the various encapsulation types going on? Right. So over the band, there is definitely going to be an issue of uh, with the layers of encapsulations that we are uh, putting on top of the regular IP packet, say. So VXLAN header is about 38 bytes, 24 UDP, plus another 14, 14 bytes typically of uh, Ethernet header. So that kind of extends that packet out. Further up, IPsec encrypted packets, uh, approximately 100 bytes of overhead there also. So that's quite a large set of overheads that we add on in, in terms of, especially if you are thinking about going over a WAN, which may have a variable MDU anyways. Uh, uh, so that that is definitely an uh, issue and would would be something that they need to be taken into account if we were uh, truly trying to do something across a WAN network. Uh, I do know for that IPsec implementation supports something called prefrag or prefragmentation, where the encrypting engine will prefragment the payload before it, uh, the IP payload before it sends it across across the WAN. So that way, the penultimate or the ultimate destination has to do the the reassembly so it kind of uh, conceptually it breaks down the reassembly part across and out to all the different uh, to the endpoints so that way it can uh, you know you get a fan out of the workload of so, the reassembly but again, what, case, what you're talking uh, about sorry. there is just that that pre-encryption fragmentation you're talking about the ipsec engine is going to look at that packet and go hmm if i encrypt this as is it's going to be too big, I'm going to fragment it ahead of time. It, so now we've got two fragments that each get in, uh, encrypted, delivered across the network, decrypted. Now there's two fragments that, as you say, that, that remote side now has to reassemble that packet and, and deal with it. Exactly, exactly. So in the in end-to-end -end host communication, that, that works out pretty well because assuming there are N hosts talking to M hosts across the WAN, then you kind of have the reassembly work gets fanned out. But uh, unfortunately, in this case, the packet that you are fragmenting is a VXLAN uh, packet. IP, the IP packet that goes into IPsec encryption engine is a VXLAN. So mm -hmm. still on the receiving end, the workload will still be the, with uh, whoever is doing the VXLAN uh, reassembly. So in some ways, you can't really, can't, don't get that benefit of a fan out there. But so... But it will be an issue. I mean, there is no sidestepping that point that if you are truly doing encryption plus uh, VXLAN and CAP, then there will be an issue of, or you'll have to take into account what the MTU setting is across the WAN. But again, it's, yeah, that's going to be more of a WAN issue, though. I mean, inside of a data center, I, I think jumbo frames would be more common where this is less of a concern. 
yes definitely and actually that's to the point we were discussing earlier Ethan around uh network service providers they if they control the core then they also understand the mdu so it's a controlled environment they understand what the mdu settings are across their van uh van links so they have a much more control about the mdu settings so that's why i think for uh, it may be more uh some you know it may be easier for the network service providers to adopt uh, it across a long distance vans where as opposed to trying to do it over the internet Hmm. Okay. Okay. Um, so now another key part of this technology is eVPN. Um, we've had a number of shows on eVPN over the years. We've done some, uh, some packet walks and, uh, some technology overviews and so on, but I, I would say it's still not all that commonly available yet. Um, so how can regular folks who think this is an interesting technology and want to get a hold of DM eVPN, uh, work with it? Right. So actually, when I heard all your podcasts around eVPN, it sounded uh, very interesting and I wanted to try it out. But there is no, I in my laptop environment where I do most of my development, I don't have a, I don't typically run BGP, let alone empty BGP. So I was kind of in a dilemma where I was like, I want to try something like that, where I want to stretch uh, layer two networks, but I don't have a BGP, I don't run BGP, I don't have a MP BGP stack, let alone a stack with uh, support for eVPN in it. So, but I also realized as I was, as I've heard your podcast around eVPN that conceptually what eVPN is trying to do is very similar to what DMVPN was trying to do for IP uh, address resolutions. So that is why uh, the core concept of EV, DMVPN came to my head. So, so what I have done is basically done an open source, uh, taken an open source project called OpenNHRP and extending it, extended it to support the address resolution, layer two address resolution in it. And I have, uh, it's available at GitHub, uh, and we can post it probably as a show note, but uh, github.com, S-A-U-M-O-H, uh, slash D-M-E-V-P-N. So I have those uh, source code available that folks could probably try it out uh, to um, to try out a D-M-E-V-P-N type solution. Basically, OpenNHRP is a user space daemon, and for the packet path right now, I am. I just implemented it using the kernels, Linux kernels implementation of VXLAN tunneling. Uh, but there is a specific way that VXLAN tunnels have to be set up. But we will go into the details of those uh, as we are uh, further down the conversation. Okay, and and, and I should remind uh, or, or let people know that are listening to this. If uh, if you missed it on packetpushers.net, Sar wrote a very detailed post with configuration code uh, and, and everything explaining. DMVPN uh, or DMEVPN, how it works, uh, etc. So you've got some working examples to go from there in addition to um, the code he's made available in GitHub. Uh, and links will be in the show notes uh, for this, just as just as you said, Saurabh, uh, again, at packetpushers.net. If you just um, search for DMEVPN on the site, you'll, you'll pop up with the show, the article that Saurabh wrote, etc., uh, okay, so you took an open source project, OpenNHRP, extended it to do layer two address resolution, and that is at the core of uh, what is making DMEVPN work. Uh, all right, 
So, so I, I got to back up a step though, because you mentioned something else. I mean, I've dug into EVPN a bit, not a ton, but enough to know that um, MPBGP is is crucial to uh, to EVPN. That's a big, you know, it's a BGP extended to carry new attributes uh, in the NLRIs and so on. So, but but again, that's not part of the DM EVPN solution. There is no multi protocol BGP there. Unless I miss something. So, so how does DM EVPN work around this challenge? Right. So, um, one of the things I liked about the way uh, DM VPN solution was built together was that it is layering together a set of protocols to build out the solution. So, for example, in DM VPN or DM EVPN, it doesn't matter. Uh, NHRP, which is the next up resolution protocol, is layered on top of uh, any routing protocol. So you could, uh, in your underlying infrastructure over which you are running NHRP, you could be running BGP, you could be running OSPF, you could be even in my laptop environment doing just static routing. So beyond that, it's NHRP is layered on top of a net, uh, IP networking. And beyond that, you can, uh, then if you want to add security, you can layer on top of that IPsec tunneling. So as long as you have a multi-point tunneling capability, you have address, uh, you have routing resolution using either a, proto, a static routing or, proto, or, um, or a routing protocol, you can layer an HRP on top and if needed IPsec on top to kind of build up uh, different layers. So, it's, uh, so that is kind of a nice thing about it. It does, uh, NHRP does one thing and one thing well. And it doesn't try to build everything together into a into the routing protocol stack, and which and I completely I don't want to diss MPBGP uh, at all here. That's not the point. I think the if you already are running a MPBGP stack, it makes sense perhaps to you know extend your uh, existing uh, uh, protocol stack to support another functionality. But if you're not using it, then it's kind of, uh, it's, uh, there is a strong barrier to entry to kind of adopt, uh, adopt a uh, layer to stretched tunneling uh, if you did not have that protocol stack. So, okay. And then, so a lot of pieces just fell together here. So NHRP is doing the layer two address resolution for us. We used to carry, just from an EVPN perspective, we we would carry that information via multi-protocol BGP. We don't need multi-protocol BGP to carry you know, MAC address at advertisements, if you will. That's a, kind of a simplification of what's happening there, but let, let's say that that's what's happening. And, uh, and now NHRP does that for me. I still need a routing protocol of whatever my choice is because my VXLAN endpoints need to be able to route to one another when I go to stand up a tunnel. Um, but I'm not at this point, it's not like a lot of DM, just traditional DM VPN implementations might have um, spokes that are announcing the end networks that are hanging off of that spoke and advertising them into the DM VPN cloud, uh, you know, via the tunnel interfaces. That's, this is different from, uh, that's different from what we're really doing here with the layer two uh, address resolution protocol or layer two, protocol mapping, if you will, happening via NHRP. So it's just a kind of a different uh, set of thinking that I'm doing. And if you could see me, you would see me waving my arms around and uh, and my eyebrows up in the air as I ponder this. 
Right, so it's actually very close to if he is, let's, you know, I, I myself come from the DMVPN background. So in DMVPN, what you're doing is you're, the spokes are communicating with a hub trying to resolve an IT subnet, right? So basically at a base layer, what they do is spoke says, I need to reach a private subnet and does the hub have a, can the hub resolve that IP address, right? That's the that's the, what NHRP protocol is doing in DMVPN. So in this case, all we did was all I did was just simply say instead of a IP address resolution, resolve it um, resolve a MAC address, right? So that's the extension that's been done basically. Got it. Okay. Okay. So. NHRP is is core to this here. Um, it, it's a standard. It is open, uh, but then you had to extend it. So so dig into that for us. Can you explain what exactly you did to NHRP to support the uh, the layer two discovery? Sure. Uh, yeah. So there was one. There were basically three main things that I had to implement. Um, the RFC twenty three thirty two for next hop resolution protocol. It's it. The RFC itself supports resolution of any protocol address. So that's built into the protocol or uh, RFC rather. So in DMVPN, the protocol address, as we were talking earlier, is the resolution of IP subnets. For DMEVPN, I extended open NHRP implementation of the RFC to support layer two MAC address resolution. And uh, that's one uh, change that I had to make. So that's fairly straightforward. But I also wanted to support resolution of multiple layer two networks. What I mean, uh, what I mean by that is that uh, since I, my use case that I was trying to think through was I want to support multiple virtual layer two networks, and especially if you're coming from a VXLAN background, you would understand that that you you can build multiple uh, layer two uh, virtual layer two networks using VXLAN. So I also wanted to support that. And so there is already an existing RFC, it's called RFC 2735, which extended NHRP protocol to include in it a VPN ID. So the way it extended is on top of any NHRP protocol packet, you encapsulate it in another overlay header, which is a VPN ID. So I implemented that also. So what that enables us to do is it enables each layer two network to be associated with the VPN ID, and therefore it became possible in NHRP to support multiple layer two, uh, multiple network resolutions, address okay, resolutions. Okay, so, so again, just to recap that much so far, um, NHRP supports a VPN ID as opposed to uh, uh, as documented in RFC 2735, you leverage that. Uh, and that gives us the ability to have an identifier that says, okay, these Macs belong to this network, whatever that would be. Um, some engineers might think of VLANs, you know, a, a common you know, layer two space as, as a VLAN. VXLAN also with uh, uh, a VNID, um, VXLAN network identifier also can break up layer two uh, domains in this way. And now we've got a field within NHRP that we can leverage to identify that. Okay, so I'm with you so far. Exactly. 
Exactly, exactly. I, I think you said it better than I did. And so, uh, so now that we have we have the ability to support multiple VPNs. So that kind of gives us a distinguisher there. The the caveat there, or the differentiation that I think is interesting to point out here, is that you have the same, you have a similar identifier in a VXLAN header, which is the virtual network identifier VNI ID inside the VXLAN header. I intentionally separate the VPN ID that is carried out in an HRP from the VN ID because I think the, and we will probably, maybe the difference will become clearer further on, but just to make that point that it's important that these are different because I think of VXLAN VNI IDs local in scope to each spoke. And so I wanted to make sure that they were differentiated from the uh, NHRP VPN ID. So mm. that I think difference will I, become. Yeah, I, I uh -huh. see what you're saying there. Because you can also, I, I know it's pretty common to map uh, a VXLAN identifier to a VLAN, you know, sometimes for handoff into the local network, and that those do not have to be the same on either end. Uh, when you do those, those right. mappings, you may want it to be for sanity's yeah. sake, but they don't certainly don't have to be. Right, exactly. So if we lay down in terms of uh, VLAN, so if I say I have two layer two islands that I want to interconnect uh, using this uh, DME VPN type technology, then it's possible that on one side it's VLAN 10, on the other side it's VLAN 11. But I, when we are mapping these two together, they belong to the same network, right? So it's, I, I mean, I see the use case around, I can build each layer to island in isolation, not worrying about the interoperability across um, across the different uh, islands, and but the, the interoperability will come, or the mapping will rather come when you are trying to talk to each other over these, some sort of a tunnel, uh, like what we are talking here. Um, so that was the second change. Um, so basically, to recap, just add a VPN ID in terms of what NHRP, then, NHRP does. The third change I had to make was that uh, because VXLAN tunnels are strictly data plane artifacts, so unlike GRE tunnels, which can you can carry both control protocol, control traffic, and data plane traffic inside the GRE tunnel, VXLAN uh, tunnels you can only carry. Um, uh, data plane traffic. Well, so, basically, so, there's no ease type in the VXLAN here. Sorry. Oh, well, just to, just to clarify that for someone who wouldn't know the difference between control plane and data plane necessarily, I mean, you're talking like across a VXLAN tunnel, I could not bring up, say, a routing adjacency. But in a GRE tunnel, I could. Right, exactly. So in a GRE tunnel, I could, like, if you go back to how VPN is implemented, you just have you build a mesh of multipoint GRE tunnel, and the GRE, the same GRE tunnel is carrying the NHRP resolution protocol payload, and also carrying the end-to-end -end communication where the hosts are trying to talk to each other. That payload also gets carried in the same GRE tunnel. Mm -hmm. Well, you can't really do that in just using VXLAN tunnels because VXLAN tunnels uh, don't have the notion of uh, carrying um, carrying any sort of uh, 
control protocol traffic. So there's no way to make a distinguishment there. Distinguishment there. Uh, yeah, no ETH type in the VXLAN header. Exactly, exactly. Which, um, so that was actually, so I had to make sure that uh, there was a notion of a data plane tunnel and a control plane tunnel. And the way I resolved it is in the NHRP configuration, I tie the data plane and the control plane together. So you would, if anybody is going through the NHRP configuration examples in the blog post, you will see why certain knobs have been added to the configuration settings. And uh, initially, the separation of the control plane and the data plane tunnel was kind of weird to me. But as I was implementing it, it seemed very powerful. As I could clearly see that the control plane implementation was very clearly distinguished from the packet pipeline, uh, which which has a nice, very nice side effect that today it's, it's uh, the implementation is based on uh, VXPAN, but tomorrow maybe in VGRE or some other packet pipeline protocol for our layer two extensions could be used for it. Or you could even do it on a hardware based switch. But again, you could run your separate audio control and their data plane very clearly. But, but so, again, with that, uh, uh, that, that data plane um, being a, a packet pipeline that you could implement, that, that really has performance implications. I think that's the, that's the big takeaway here. Exactly, exactly. So it is a, you know, you kind of, you could address your packet pipeline in many ways that are strictly, which could be specific to your implementation. So for example, if you had a, a VXLAN packet pipeline that you were implementing with um, OpenFlow or OpenVSwitch kind of implementation, you could do that because the protocol no longer is tied with it, right? So the protocol runs on a separate uh, on a separate track, whereas your performance utilization that you can get on your packet pipeline, whereas the control plane uh, is not as chatty as maybe the end-to-end -end communication between two hosts would be. Mm, okay. So that was kind of nice also. Okay, so we, we've talked about DMEVPN. We've gotten into a lot of really interesting details, especially, uh, especially the under-the-hood work that you needed to do with NHRP to extend it to support uh, this. So I think maybe a good way to bring all of this together, Asarab, is, to is to do a packet walk. Uh, so here, here's a scenario that I've, I've come up with. Um, you know, we've got host A and host B, they're on opposite sides of our DME VPN cloud. Let's just describe it that way. They're in the same layer two space, right? So, uh, you know, now if they were, if this was just ethernet, there'd be an ARP, um, a response and ethernet frame would be created. And then, um, that frame would be delivered to the destination. Pretty straightforward. Anybody with Wireshark could watch such a thing happen, but. With DME VPN, we've got all these other moving parts that allow these two hosts to communicate. Can you uh, can you walk us through the process? Uh, sure. So let's uh, let's try it, and feel free to stop me because it, <laughs> it's uh, quite a few steps to it. But let's just start. Let's assume that um, host A is eleven dot zero dot zero dot ten, and host B is eleven dot zero dot zero dot eleven. They are in two different layer two islands, so they are not directly connected to each other, and they're separated host A is behind a DME VPN spoke, let's call it spoke one, and host B is behind spoke two. 
and let's assume both the spokes have registered with a with a DME VPN hub. So what registration of spoke with the hub means is that both spokes are recognized by the hub to be part of the same VPN network. So both spokes are now registered with the hub and indicating that they want to be part of the same layer two network. So once this baseline setup has been done between the hub and the spokes, Postay, when it tries to send a, does an ARP resolution for the MAC address of uh, IP address 11.0.0.11, which is host E's IP address, it will do host A will do a broadcast, a layer two broadcast. It will send out a layer two broadcast for this ARP resolution. Spoke one on its, which is on the same layer two domain as the uh, host one, will receive this. Um, broadcast packet, and since it doesn't have a, it uh, obviously it's a broadcast packet, so it will simply VXLAN encapsulate this payload and send it to the hub. So uh, okay, once, so it uh -huh. sends it to the hub. He doesn't send it to spoke two. I'm guessing because he doesn't know anything about spoke two being in the same VPN as him, so he's got to deliver it to the hub for starters. Exactly. Exactly. So it, since there's two reasons, first it's a broadcast packet, so it doesn't know what all uh, what are the different spokes that are part of the same VPN that are participating in the same VPN. Only the hub has this information. So the spoke one sees a broadcast packet coming from the local network, and once it sees a broadcast packet, it will uh, it will forward it to the hub for a resolution, hmm. right? So, and so the hub at this point will receive this broadcast packet and will do two basic things. So first it will, hub is acting as a traditional layer to switch in the sense it will learn as the packet comes to the hub, it will learn that the host A is reachable, host A's MAC address is reachable via spoke one. So hub has learned which VXLAN tunnel with which VNI ID is associated with the host A's MAC address. Now he learned that technically mm -hmm. via NHRP, correct? No, this is pure layer two learning. So okay. it's a, so it just is a, the VXLAN traffic from the spoke one to hub. It's a, when the VXLAN traffic, VXLAN tunnel is part of a bridge and the a, and the hub is acting as a layer two bridge or a so layer two. Truly, uh, okay, because bridge. so that hub has got a, the you know the Linux bridge functionality built in. So he truly is it uh, you know a learning layer two switch at this point. Exactly. Got it. Okay. Exactly. So the trick there is, or rather, not the trick, but the implementations in detail that I'm waving over is that the hub needs to know which VXLAN tunnel the traffic came in on and map that VXLAN tunnel with the VNID to the right VPN. Because conceptually the hub could be host, uh, could be the hub for multiple VPNs, so it needs to a way to map it to the right VPN ID. So um, we will skip that, it's uh, kind of a, a specific or nuance of the implementation rather, so that's not, fundamental to the implementation of, I mean, to the discussion. So since the broad, it's a broadcast packet, 
belonging to a certain VPN hub will then uh, will will uh, replicate this broadcast packet to all the spokes that have registered for that particular VPN. So as a consequence of that, hub a spoke two will receive this traffic from the hub, uh, this broadcast packet from the hub. Again, our art our art packet has finally now made it to spoke two. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay. Now. <laughs> I know. Uh, so, but spoke to there is another subtle point here that since the it's a layer two packet that reached the spoke from the hub, a traditional bridge will now would have learned that the MAC address of host A is behind hub, right? Because that's the tunnel that it came out from the hub. But it, in this case, it should not do that. Because the hub is actually acting as a layer two proxy gateway, it's not really the source of any of these IP uh, MAC addresses. It's a a proxy. Yeah, right? we don't we don't want traffic so, flowing through the hub. That would be a bottleneck. We want the spokes to learn what the other spokes are. They should be speaking to directly. Exactly, exactly. So that's to uh, circumvent this particular problem. Uh, what I did was I had to configure the VXLAN tunnels that are configured to talk to the hub to not to basically configure them in uh, in the Linux kernel to to don't learn any MAC addresses on those tunnels. Uh, just as an aside, it would have been nice if there was a bit in the VXLAN header that could be set and you could basically say, for this packet, don't learn the source MAC. If we had an implementation that I that um, that would have been nice because then I wouldn't uh, then there could be there could be an optimization in terms of how this is all implemented. Mm. But yeah. um, you, I you didn't just, want you to just pull that step. bit off the VXLAN header when you're doing the initial processing in the decap, and then know as a function of reading the header that I'm not supposed to. But but again, that's a that's a would have been nice, but that's actually not part of the spec. So you had to solve it however you solved it. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, so basically, now spoke to has got this packet uh, the app request, um, and now we'll flood it towards its local network. Host P will receive this and send a response back. Now, a unicast response back to the app request and app response with the with the DMAC of hosting. Now, when host spoke to receives this app uh, response, uh, it does not have a entry in its local uh, bridge forwarding table for host A's MAC address, so it's a MAC miss. This MAC miss is what will trigger the NHRP resolution, uh, NHRP uh, protocol stack at spoke2 to generate an NHRP resolution request towards the hub for the host A's MAC address. And now now that, that since Hub has had learned hostage MAC address. Hub can now respond to this resolution request with the MAC address of host A. And the resolution request is hostage MAC address is associated with spoke one. What's the VXLAN tunnel endpoint for spoke one and the VNI ID for spoke one, uh, spokes one's uh, VXLAN. Again, all of that so, information being in the NHRP response that comes back from the hub sent back to spoke to. 
Exactly, exactly. Yes. And now spoke two can now directly send the traffic to spoke one. So this way, now finally, spoke one has built a, uh, spoke two has built a shortcut tunnel, VXLAN shortcut tunnel to uh, spoke one directly. So that's how the traffic unicast response, NHR, uh, sorry, ARP response gets directly from spoke two to spoke one bypassing the hub. So now that spoke one has received the response, ARP response from spoke two, it will directly forward it back to, um, again, because of the point around the excellent tunneling, we spoke one has still not learned the MAC address of, uh, of uh, host B because of the don't learn uh, feature that had to be set up for northbound facing uh, VXLAN tunnels uh, between the spokes and hub. So again, when host A tries to send the next unicast packet towards host B, spoke one will do the same NHRP resolution request mm -hmm. for us, for the destination MAC of host B and we'll get a response back from the hub and uh, Form a direct tunnel between spoke two and spoke one. So, so that's spoke, how spoke one is not going to be able to learn from the unicast that's sent to him from spoke two. He, he's still going to have to do an NHRP resolution against the hub um, to to get that entry built so that he can unicast back to spoke two. Exactly, exactly. So, as we were discussing, if there was a bit that if spoke to, since it's the true originator for the MAC address, source MAC, if it could send a VXLAN traffic saying, yes, you can learn this, whereas Hub is acting like a proxy and could set a bit saying, don't learn, mm -hmm. then you could, you know, you could then, have that optimization. Because then you could have the spokes learn from each other as traffic comes and goes, uh, and, and, and the Hub operate in the same way, but just with the bit set, if, if there were such a magical bit. But since we don't have that, we're uh, we're not learn we're we're forced to not learn, uh, except via NHRP. Exactly, exactly. So remote max you learn only through NHRP. So uh, because of that uh, limitation, I, I mean, I could have implemented it, but I did not want to uh, deviate from the spec too much uh, because you know it's nice to be compliant. Oh come on, so live a little. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay so okay so now we're at a point where spoke one and spoke two both have entries that they can unicast to each other and so um you know via a, a known tunnel for uh, host a and host b so that now host a yeah. and host b can communicate uh, via the spokes directly to uh one another exactly okay it's complicated. Okay. And it seems like there's some, yeah, there's some, some overhead there for sure. Um, so just, just curious, I mean, as a, as a proof of concept, this works, um, do, but do you, you know, are there major performance limitations that we would see, you know, early on that would have to be addressed were this to go, you know, to a large scale? Uh, yes, uh, quite a few actually. Um, most prominent of these is that uh, that at least in my mind that I think is uh, quite prominent is a there is um, every time a spoke sees a packet that it does not do uh, does not know the MAC address for it 
triggers a MAC miss, which implies that the data pi packet pipeline is not triggering the control plane uh, to do some address resolution, right? So conceptually, it's possible that somebody could be just generating, uh, you know, uh, fake MAC, destination MAC addresses, and that's going to kind of kill down the whole system hmm. because you are just generating. Uh, so that, I think, is a quite a limitation. I mean, there is obviously... Um, pretty standard solutions around how to, uh, you know, uh, rate limit uh, communication from the control plane to the from the data plane to the control plane. But that's definitely something that should be, uh, if anybody was to think about it as a production system, that would be the first um, thing to tackle. And the optimization around uh, MAC address resolution, which we were discussing, is definitely something to think about. And I think finally, the third thing is that uh, not un all unknown Macs should be sent to the hub for resolution. Some, so for example, the spokes are seeing a broadcast app response and trying to generate a uh, hub uh, uh, NHRP resolution request towards the hub. Uh, maybe there should be some sort of an optimization implemented to. Uh, see if the uh, MAC address is getting resolved locally, and if it is, then don't try to generate a uh, NHRP resolution request to the hub, towards the hub. I think those are mostly optimizations I think that need to be hmm. uh, done if, uh, if this was able to see the light of uh, production network. Okay. Okay. So, so if I want to try this out, uh, I'm interested in working with this technology. Uh, again, I mentioned your blog post earlier on packetpushers.net. Again, just search for DMEVPN. That post will come up. You've got configuration code uh, right in there. Um, how can I set this up in a lab? Right. So uh, it's a pretty simple setup between you can try minimum three nodes, two spokes, one hub, or you, if you want to also emulate the host, then basically a five-node setup. Uh, you can set it up in your lab, or you can also do it. In, I mean, I set it up all in my laptop, so you can do that. And uh, so it's that's definitely possible. Uh, so uh, yeah, you should be able to. It's all Linux-based uh, implementation of everything, so I think that should be pretty easy to do. Is, is there a particular distro of Linux that you prefer or that should work? I tried it on Ubuntu 14.04, um, that, so I think that should work. I think you probably need to be pretty close in terms of IT route uh, 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 package that is available on the kernel, so that should be fairly recent for mostly because of the VXLAN uh, configurations that knobs that are needed. Uh, on the hub, there is a patch that you need for the VXLAN kernel module. And that patch is so that the hub learns the VXLAN endpoint plus the VNI ID. So, so but that patch is again part of the Git repo under the patches directory. There is a kernel patch for version 404. Sorry, is that uh, that your GitHub repo specifically? You mean or uh, yes? So okay. in the Open NHRP repo that I have upstream, and uh, that has a patches directory under which there is. Uh, under the patches directory, there is a patch for the kernel's VXLAN, implement, uh, VXLAN kernel module implementation. Okay, so Ubuntu 404, or 14.04, you said, so it doesn't have to be you know, a super bleeding edge kernel, but something pretty recent. 
um, again, for all the VX LAN stuff, et cetera, which tells me I don't need tons and tons of uh, RAM either for just a five node setup. Um, I've I've got 32 gig in my iMac here. If I wanted to try, that's probably way more than enough, eh? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, my laptop, I have half the memory as you do, so and I tried it, so it works. Yeah, just have to make sure you learn run, uh, run lean, and it's not very CPU intensive or uh, memory intensive. None of the modules are, so it should right. be fairly straightforward to run it. Okay. okay, so if I do get this set up in the lab, is there any? I mean, you mentioned the the patch that's required. Um, is there any other gotchas to be aware of? So yeah, I, I think if. If you're going to try it out, I think the biggest thing to be, if you were fairly comfortable with the Linux kernel's implementation of VXLAN, tunneling, plus uh, how they set up uh, forwarding tables, where to forwarding tables, I mean, the more comfort you have there, I think it will make more sense and would, I mean, the learning curve would be not that steep. But uh, yeah, I mean, if you feel free to send me a note, I'd be happy to help and uh, and more, any feedback is welcome on it. Uh, so I would love to hear some uh, uh, some feedback. That would be really great. Well, it's great. Um, what's, the, what's the best way for folks to get a hold of you? Would that be through GitHub or, or Twitter or email? What, what's your preference? Uh, yeah, so I, I'm not that much on Twitter or anything like that or any of the social media stuff. So, uh, you know, I'm... Uh, you can check me out on LinkedIn. So I can, you can check Saurabh Mohan at LinkedIn. You can check me there. And uh, that's uh, probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. Great. Well, Saurabh, this has been fun. I love shows like this where it gets super nerdy and diving deep. And on something like this, that's a, uh, you know, a, kind of a prototype, a proof of concept. It's just all kinds of fun uh, to chat with the person who conceived of and, uh, and, and created this. Um, this was, uh, this was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed this. Thank you, and thanks for geeking out with me. I appreciate it. <laughs> okay. Hopefully we'll get to meet in uh, in real life at some point. And uh, to, to all of you that are listening, thanks a lot for listening to Packet Pushers today. On the Priority Queue, you can find this and many more fine, free technical podcasts, along with our community blog at packetpushers.net. We're on Twitter at Packet Pushers. We're also on LinkedIn if you'd like to follow us there. You can like, like us on Facebook, and if you would, please rate us on iTunes. We would appreciate that. Last but not least... Remember that too much technology would never be enough.